Well, welcome to episode 89 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the hack, Hugh Remington, the professor, as you probably know by now, is Peter Van Onselen, the professor at, uh, of public policy and politics at Griffith University and UWA Prof. G'day, Hugh. Hi. Not too bad. Uh, 89, have we hit Joe Biden's age yet? Yeah, <laughs> we've surpassed Joe Biden's age. <laughs> How that might be to believe. Um, look, what a week. One thing which struck me about the Prime Minister's press conference this week is that uh, it occurred, and we'll talk to it in detail and, and other things, but it occurred at a time when uh, much of New South Wales was under the worst flooding in 100 years when people's homes were being buried and washed away and, uh, and people were being evacuated. And yet in the middle of that, such has become the whole business around sexual assault, equality for women, all that sort of stuff, that that was what dominated uh, the press conference. So I, I did think that was remarkable. I, I can't recall a time when at a time really where you've got state emergencies going that people want to talk about something else. But I guess that goes to the temper of the times, Peter. Yeah, look, it does. There was there was essentially no interest in the questions to where he started that media conference by providing all the information around these incredibly serious floods before then going on to address, um, well, 10 News' story in particular, but also some of the wider issues that have been faced in the context of the treatment of women generally, not just in the Parliament House building. And, um, you know, that obviously led... Uh, the coverage out of Sydney on the floods with what he had to say with that update and his commentary. But um, the, the whole Q&A back and forth was all about uh, what he is or in plenty of people's eyes isn't doing uh, when it comes to trying to you know, fix the various problems that, that exist on the, on the mistreatment of women. Um, the latest, of course, being uh, the whole issue of what's going on in Parliament House um, you know, with men behaving badly. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the broader issue in just a moment. But let's let's just go go to the story that you broke about uh, men who were um, uh, performing lewd sex acts. My wife asked, why don't we just say masturbation? But there you go. Maybe because the news goes on at uh, five o'clock in the afternoon and there are uh, there are classification issues around the, the language that, that are used, but essentially masturbating onto desks. Also, Hugh, I mean, without we're not going to get into it in this podcast, but also because that is only one part of it. Um, when I sort of sat down with others in the team to work out how to express this, we settled on solo sex acts, um, but uh, it, it wasn't just uh, as you describe. It was broader than that, but we didn't really know how to talk about it, uh, and we didn't really have any intention, quite frankly, in getting into the micro details of what was going on um but it was um yeah it was pretty disgusting and it was it was um there was a lot of there was a lot in those pixelated photographs and more particularly videos that we didn't show when it came to the videos in particular and you couldn't make out because of the pixelation because it just there was not only could you not show it but there was also a real genuine issue in how do you even describe it other than to describe it as solo sex acts which were disgusting yeah, I've never been so grateful for pixelation in my life uh, as when that came <laughs> along. Um, so just to clarify here, this is, as we understand, a group of uh, men mm. of about four 
who were exchanging vision of sex acts was it was just one person was doing these solo sex acts and 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 sharing it around the group or were others involved in this i'm trying to get a sense of the scale of it sure sure no no it was more than one um we know that one staffer is now lost his job uh, in relation to this. It certainly seems to be in relation to this. That's what the Prime Minister's told us. Uh, but it was more than one. Uh, he was, if you like, at the vanguard of it. Um, but others have also shared images as well, uh, and video for that matter. Um, but you know, there, there, I guess you'd, you'd say there was a ringleader, um, but it was wider than the one person, which is why... Um, you know, it's not over as a result of that one person having been sacked. And that's before you even get to the allegations of a sex worker being brought in to Parliament, uh, which was part of what the whistleblower told us. So um, there's there's elements left to this story, whether or not um, they fade away is, is its own matter. Um, but yes, it was four people that I know of. Uh, and, you know, whether it was wider than that is, is not something that our whistleblower was able to shed any light on. And just to clarify, because it's been reported by you that uh, that there were uh, these acts performed on the desk of a female MP, um, mm. is, is your impression that this was a particular female MP who was targeted or was it uh, opportunistic bad behaviour? Was it targeted also against uh, male politicians? And, you know, is there any indication as to what's motivating the... Uh, choice of people who are being subjected to this stuff yeah look some of that is hard to determine uh because i'm trying to get my myself in the head of those who did this but i think it was really mostly opportunistic uh in the sense that they either you know worked for this person or it was available in the context of whomever's office they were in but I do think their gender was relevant. You know, I think I, I, this is purely my interpretation. You know, there's no text to support this. Um, and I don't even think actually I, I went through this in the interview with the whistleblower about motivation, but I get the impression from the suite of material that I've seen and, and the conversations that I've had, I get the impression that the, 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 you know, the, the gender of the MP was relevant insofar as otherwise they, they would have potentially just done it on their own desk. Um, so there was there was something in that, but it's very hard for me to put my finger on exactly what it was. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's disgusting behaviour. People have to go, I, I, before we, we move on from it, I suppose we have to talk about uh, the allegation made by the whistleblower that uh, staff were procuring, as he described them, rent boys, um, mm. uh, sex workers m- more properly, described in it you know to use the language of of the times uh mm. for politicians and that itself seems strange because um you know it seems strange on many levels but that uh you know we've seen it from the perspective of the staffer but if you see it from the perspective of the politician what sitting politician thinks it's okay to organize their staff to organize a sex worker for them Oh, look, I, I, that's the part of the story that in a sense is the most extraordinary, but with less detail because there aren't videos or still pictures of that. Um, so those are allegations being made by the whistleblower, um, which are hard to substantiate at this point in time. Although I should say there is, we've got a lot more information about that than what we aired in the story. You know, we had the whistleblower's allegation rather than a whole series of texts and details about um, who the sex worker or, 
was uh, in relation to this. Um, and that's partly for legal reasons, also partly because we're trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting out of this, for what it's worth, and I asked the Prime Minister this in his media conference, um, that extraordinary media conference that I'm sure we'll circle back to, um, I, I, it's not like, you know, they keep saying, whether it's Scott Morrison or I think Simon Birmingham as the Minister for Finance who has oversight for staffers, they, they keep saying they want to hear from people who have who know anything about this so that they can take action. And they would like to hear from the whistleblower that we spoke to at 10. Now, you know, he's obviously wanting to protect his identity and I can entirely understand that. So, you know, he may not choose to take up that offer uh, and I would be entirely understanding of that because it would be a hard thing to do maintaining his anonymity. Um, but in my question to Scott Morrison, I made the point, the staffer who has resigned, and we need to be really mindful that whatever vulgarity he's been involved in, um, you know, he would be going through his own tumult at the moment because of having lost his job and all of that. And I understand that the Liberal Party is helping him in, on that front, as they should. Um, but at the right time, uh, he, according to the whistleblower, knows a lot more about these issues of men behaving badly in relation to other staffers, but in particular also, again, according to the whistleblower, when it comes to this idea of the sex worker being signed into the building and, and the things that have been alleged to have occurred. Now, if the government is serious about trying to find out more about this, rather than just saying they're unsubstantiated, we don't know anything about that, they need to have a conversation with this staffer who was a long-term senior Liberal staffer to find out whether what the whistleblower alleges can be substantiated by him. Um, and that, I think, is where the story goes and it's where the actual uncovering of, of what is alleged to have occurred goes if the government is genuine in its desire to get to the bottom of this as opposed to just get through this media storm. I'm reminded that Emma Hussar lost her career as a Labour Party member for the seat of Lindsay in Western Sydney on charges of bullying. There were some lascivious claims that were found to have no substance that were also laid against her. But when it came down to the bullying, uh, exhibit number one was that she'd asked her staff to go and pick up a dry cleaning. And uh, I, I just am trying to square the circle between um, a politician losing their job uh, for asking, you know, there are other things also for asking for a dress to be picked up and then bringing a dog into the office and so on and that upsetting mm. some people apparently. But but at the same time, a politician is in the office. If we assume that there's truth in everything that you've reported, the whistleblower is telling the truth, mm. there is a serving, presumably, politician uh, on the conservative side of politics, federal politics, who is, um, A, getting staff to bring in a sex worker for him, but also, I don't know, I do know the name of, uh, of, of, of one uh, two outwardly gay men in the liberal side of politics. Um, uh, you know, one guesses that it may be someone else outside that, but mm. um, who is who is also hypocritical enough in the conservative side of politics to be bringing in male sex workers um, and getting staff to do it. There just seems to be so much that seems beyond the pale both about the public positions of presumably who these politicians are, but also the fact that you go back to Emma Hussar, she got sacked for asking a staff member to bring up the bloody dry cleaning, for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I suspect, you know, 
whether the way she was treated was fair or unfair. I suspect if um, the the politician who, you know, if the allegation is true about a politician in relation to having been a sex worker in Parliament House, it were to a be shown to be true and, and secondly lead to a politician being named, I suspect that would have repercussions. Of course, we don't know the name of the person, and it's also interesting. I know that people have. Uh, I, I, you know, I've seen people talking about this, that you know, sex work isn't illegal in the ACT. What's the big deal? That's not really the issue for me. The issue, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a smaller liberal about that. I couldn't agree more. However, um, we're talking about it in Parliament House, in the so-called prayer slash meditation room. I think that's where it becomes an issue, clearly. It's not about whether you agree or disagree with the legality of, of sex work. I think that's a, a red herring to this discussion. The discussion is about the context of it being in parliament. And I do think, I mean, I agree with you, Hugh, what Emma Hassar went for uh, was nothing of this order. Um, if a politician was named as having partook in this, um, you know, whether they admitted it or not, um, that's where I think it becomes more interesting whether that did cost them their pre-selection at the next election or whatever it might be, um, or they got kicked out of the party, uh, you would assume that is what would happen. But, you know, you know what they say about assumptions, maybe not. The other thing about it is, I, I don't want to dwell endlessly on this, but it means bringing someone into the secure areas of parliament for purposes that are not normally parliamentary business. And I, you know, I accept that uh, uh, there's nothing illegal about sex work in, in, in the ACT. And I agree with you on, uh, on those issues, but, you know, the issues there for, you know, just generally security, then now layers of security get into those areas of parliament. There's also that and the potential, for potential the, blackmail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's where Labor has gone on this issue uh, so far. And, and what remains to be seen, I mean, I know, well, in, in relation to the allegations, I, I have the name of the sex worker in question, um, haven't managed to make contact yet, um, but I'm trying to, you know, if, if you like, reach out to see if the person's prepared to have a conversation about things. Um, we will see. That would that would be an interesting development, if so. Um, so we'll see what happens. And, and and just one final thing on it. We're going to move on. I promise. I promise. If you're listening, please. Um, please. You, you you say you say that as it should be. The person who's been sacked now is being looked after by the Liberal Party. And I mm. look at that and I think I'm, I, I just don't know. If, I just don't know how that sits. Um, you know, that there's a great degree of care for this bloke who has, um, you know, committed solo sex acts over the desks of colleagues, including senior colleagues and bosses, essentially politicians. Um, I, I don't know if that was found out about people out in the real world in real jobs. There'd be much more than there's the bloody door. See you later. Uh, hope never to see you again. There wouldn't be a great deal of care about his Thing because it's seen as such a breach of of workplace standards but that's just my view on it i'd, I'd just sort of say if, if you found out about that you'd say god you know take your issues elsewhere see you later and um you know and if anyone's calling for for a reference i'll will tell them why you left you know because there's got to be an incentive to for people to behave properly, not not to go, oh, yes, I did all these things, but never mind, because the Liberal Party will look after me and make sure I get a job and get help as I'm... It just seems weird to me. Oh, look, I, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I don't disagree with the sentiment. Um, and I, I'm also not talking about the Liberal Party looking after him in, in, in another job or a reference, because I think in the context of what he's done, he has to go end of story. I'm more just 
sensitive, I guess, to somebody's mental state. By the way, a Liberal Party that didn't do any of that, according to what I've been told and, and have no reason to disbelieve when it comes to Brittany Higgins. You know, there was absolutely none of that. Uh, I've actually got first-hand knowledge on that. There was absolutely none of that when it came to, you know, caring about her predicament in the aftermath of her departure, which in, in which she has done nothing wrong, you know. There was still no reaching out, um, whereas there was, as I understand it, some reaching out uh, for the alleged perpetrator in relation to her. And then, you know, this fellow uh, with these untoward acts that saw him lose his job, uh, I, for what it's worth, reached out to the government to ensure that they were looking out for him just because if not, uh, I wondered whether or not um, as a network for running the story, we had a responsibility purely to make sure that a person was okay. Not because there's anything resembling condoning what they did. I mean, I broke the story. Uh, it's only because I was just thinking at that human level, the same way I would think it about others. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, let me be very clear. It's, it's in no way, shape or form a, a defense of the person. I'm just cognizant that, you know, um, that these things have profound impacts on people, even if they have it coming, um, which, you know, clearly this person did because of the actions that were occurring and, and they are entirely beyond the pale in a workplace. Um, so, yeah. You're, you're a better, more thoughtful man than me, uh, PVO. Uh, let's take a break and get on with the, uh, get on with the Prime Minister. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 89 of The Professor and the Hack. Bad things happening in Parliament House, uh, the tone of the day, but its implications right across the country, particularly for women. And that extraordinary uh, news conference from the Prime Minister this week. Um, you were there, PVO. Uh, were you expecting something like this? The tears, the, in a sense, the, the, the mere culprit, the, the acknowledgement of his failings on some of his responses so far? Yeah, look, it, it really was an extraordinary media conference. Um, and, you know, some good, if that's the right word, for the PM, a lot of bad as well, which no doubt we'll talk about. It, it was watching it. It was like a roller coaster, you know. On the one hand, I'm extremely critical um, and cynical, I should probably put it, about Scott Morrison when he has crocodile tears about all manner of things, and when he has rehearsed lines where he falls back on, um, you know, talking about having spoken to Jenny about things and all. You know, rhetorical devices would be the way to put it. Um, I believed his tears and his emotion in the media conference. I did, and you might disagree. We can talk about that. But but notwithstanding believing the tears and the emotion in his voice, uh, there weren't there wasn't much by way of solutions. And I think that's what people want now. They don't they, they wanted emotion from him a month ago, and they would like solutions now. So it was late on arrival. I think Mark Riley from Channel Seven made that point uh, in his question. But then also on the spot. Uh, he lost a lot of people uh, to even even people who were leaning his way, if I could put it that way, in terms of believing the emotion. When he then pivoted and had a crack at Andrew Clonell and Sky News, which I think he's now since withdrawn and apologised for in a statement um, about trying to deflect essentially and weaponise an allegation in News Corp uh, to be able to, which I think ended up being unsubstantiated, um, to try to deflect from his own issues with a pretty pointed question from Andrew Clonell. Everyone knows that's what Andrew does. That's his job. 
he's very good at it. He asked very pointed questions. Um, and, you know, rather than deal with the question, he tried to attack the person who was asking it and the organisation for which he, it wasn't about Andrew, I should clarify. Yeah, with, with the claim that there was some, yeah, with the claim that there was some harassment of a woman in the toilet. He was quite specific about it. It was in extraordinary. A women's it was and, extraordinary. And, and there was no substance to it, not a damn thing. You know, the News Corp said we've got no complaints on train, we've got none that involve, we've got nothing that involves women's toilets. What are you talking about? And and it's you know, so you tell me he's subsequently been withdrawn, but um, you know that's that's just odd behaviour, isn't it? What was where was this? It's unprime ministerial. <laughs> it's it's deeply unprime ministerial. All right. Well, let's get back to the substance of the tears, if you like. And because mm. what I what I saw was a man who had decided that the moment had come, who'd taken the opportunity of this latest, you know, um, revelations about bad behavior inside parliament and was going to say, right, here's an opportunity to go up there. He said the night before, after you'd broken the story, it's disgusting, etc., and I will have more to say about this. So mm. he spent the night presumably working with people on what he was going to say came out, made the statement about the floods, and then immediately started to go through and acknowledge that people um, had not been happy about, for example, his saying he, he was taking the advice of Jenny, acknowledging that people that, he, that people took the view that he'd used the wrong words about, gee, in other countries, women marching would be met by bullets, uh, saying, but, you know, I never meant any offence, you know, all this sort of stuff. But he was trying to square off all these things and acknowledging people's anger about it. Mm. And then wanted to reassure people that, in fact, he cared deeply about all these things, um, again, because he has the deepest interest in opportunity, equal opportunity for, for, for women and girls, going back to how his daughters and his wife and his widowed mother-in-law, mother um, his widowed mother, I should say, mm. are the centre of his life. And that's where his voice cracks and he starts to tear up, etc., and yes, you, you say it was sincere and, and so on. Doubtless, all of us, if we talk about our children and our partners and so on, can, can get emotional about it and so on. A point being made that no one saw tears as he reflected on a rape that had taken place next door, basically next door to his own office. There were no tears for Brittany Higgins. And Hugh, in the in the context of that, let me, let me make this point, if I can, please. Uh, also, arc back for a moment to his allegation about you would be aware about some sort of um, sexual harassment or assault that he was alleging in News Corp to Andrew Clonell, which A, didn't happen, but B, even when we thought it happened, uh, didn't sound like it happened in Sky News. It was potentially something that happened in another part of a very big organisation, News Corp. How can you have a go at a journalist um, about that when it has a ended up not even being true but b even were it true wasn't happening in any proximity to andrew clonell uh yet then constantly dismiss your awareness uh, nor need to be aware almost um of something that apparently happened 50 meters from your own office and and at a gravity that is so different we're talking about a sexual assault a rape allegation uh that that of itself as, as a comparison you know did not work well for him 
Yes, I, I, I agree. And uh, the fact that for two years he was unaware of something going on like that, but seemed to believe that this guy would know about something that was going on in his own organization, which in fact hadn't happened at all, but also that slight threat. And this is something which I find an unattractive element of, of Scott Morrison, is that he used the phrase, be very careful. And he, <clears throat> you know, he, there is a kind of a, you're the prime minister for heaven's sake, you're not a, you're not a schoolyard bully, you know, your words matter more than most people's words matter. Issuing threats from the bully pulpit looks cheap and small. Um, that was my view of it. I'm going to go to two questions to you because I really want to hear your answers. Uh, <clears throat> one is on the misleading of parliament allegation that, that Labour is trying to get up in which um, the Gaetjens inquiry which he initiated to find out who knew what when about the uh, Brittany Higgins um, case it's still an allegation in, in legal terms at the moment um, had, had been suspended uh, but that was not what Scott Morrison had indicated to the house earlier in the week when he must have known about that is there any is that a, a damaging blow to him or is that just just another ripple over the surface of the water I think it's highly damaging, um, but almost a, an indicator of where he's at with some of the problems that he faces in the wider context of everything that he faces. It probably becomes closer to a ripple, even though in any normal circumstance would be damaging. And that's not me downplaying it. It's me upscaling the significance of everything that he faces uh, at the moment. And this is, if you like, just another element to that. It, it's, it, it's really interesting to me, this idea of needing to suspend an investigation into what happened um, internally, if you like, the Gaetjens review because of um, an actual police investigation into a, the allegation to see whether or not it results in charges and, and possible prosecution and so on. Um, I can see the logic in that, but I think you have to be entirely transparent about it right from the get-go, which is what obviously the allegation is hasn't happened. So that to me is, is of itself an interesting one. Um, again, I mean, I'm not, you know, this, this is the rhetorical line rather than applying it directly. Some people might, but you know, it's the cover up that gets you is always the old adage. And I think that there was a, a version of what people might perceive to be a cover up by making the investigation one that's conducted by your own former chief of staff, political chief of staff, who's now your head of department anyway, just like on sports rorts much less um, then also finding out that things are getting suspended and that there wasn't an open, transparent um, response to that in the first place. Yeah, and, and of course, the request to shut down that inquiry was at the request of the AFP, uh, as, as we know, and, and so that would be one that you'd reasonably comply with. Let's go finally to the substance. We've now got, it would appear, a prime minister who was on board with the things that people wanted him to be on board with a month ago or more. And that is uh, a, a desire to, to make actual change uh, around areas of sexual assault. There's talk of quotas potentially now, you know, there seems to be a, a momentum building back in the Liberal Party for quotas, gender quotas for uh, pre-selection for, for winnable seats. Um, on the question of sexual assault, um, are we seeing, when, what, when will we see him live up to the new Scott Morrison, I care because it matters to my daughters, and see some actual changes on sexual assault law to encourage people to bring them forward. 
well, we, we talked about this in the last podcast about, you know, sort of reform ideas and they were back of the envelope reform ideas, which is more than seems to have even been discussed publicly, at least by the government that has more than the back of an envelope to make policy adjustments and change in terms of the, you know, the, the meat that it has behind it, uh, you know, in terms of legal understanding and all the rest of it. I, I don't know when we're going to see that. I, I think we have to see it. I should stress, I believe Scott Morrison's emotion, but I think there was a large amount of self-pity in it, uh, which is not a virtuous thing, but it doesn't, in my mind, it didn't, in my mind, detract from it being genuine, but it was self-pity driven emotion, I think, uh, which a lot of people would would not have liked in the context of, of the way he's acted up until now. But we still haven't seen Hugh actual ideas for reform or even for that matter when it comes to sexual assaults uh, and the need to make adjustments so that more women come forward more prosecutions ensue and more convictions ensue as well to get it to where it needs to I know you've spoken a lot about this we haven't actually seen anything yet that suggests to me unless I've missed it that the government is making moves in that direction we saw a very brief um, tossing away of their role in it because it's a state-based criminal code but it's not as simple as that there's still an absolute role for the commonwealth um and that that would have to be the most disappointing thing i think for people particularly for women but for everyone that you know the emotion is fine the promises to do something is fine framing it in the context of women in your own life if that helps prove that you know you get it to some extent that's okay i guess but wow you know we're so far into this and the anger is so so prevalent and, and the want for change is so obvious. Why have we not heard even the marker to a, a plan to look at reforms, much less to then actually get them enacted as a consequence of that looking into them? We haven't even taken step one. So they not get it, that it's not about a speech. It's about putting meat on the bones. There's only one role for politicians uh, in a country, and that is to make laws and provide leadership to the country. Um, you know, to meet the best interests of the London. There's not a damn thing. We haven't seen the first step, have we? No. And uh, I guess uh, on a final point, there is now, we heard from Karen Andrews, uh, pressure, the, the science minister, pressure for um, uh, new pressure for quotas in the Liberal Party for winnable seats. Um, I, I'm struck on one level that this is issues far bigger than the bloody Liberal Party. Uh, you know, this this goes as an issue right across our society and who we are and what we want to be. Nevertheless, uh, it is something the Prime Minister says it's all about keep getting his house in order. Um, do you think quotas, which have been so opposed uh, on on uh, ideological grounds and, and on good arguments, you know, it, it has some arguments on not having quotas, um, but in the real world, quotas have been proven to be a, a system that actually does affect change. Are they going to come to the Liberal Party? Well, I hope so. I've been writing about the need for the Liberal Party to embrace quotas for years. Um, I think that they're, and, and I, I've, I've done speeches on it, actually, at, at sort of semi-conservative forums where I've advocated for it, uh, making the point that ideologically, I don't like the concept of quotas. And ideologically, I agree with the theory that everything should be quote-unquote merit-based but get real is always my reaction to that. Uh, if you believe, and this is always the reason why I find quotas easy to support on gender. Um, if you believe that half the population are as capable and qualified as the other half of the population, then by definition, if you don't naturally get 
to something resembling 50-50 representation, then that means that something is amiss on merit as opposed to on other grounds. And it might be a consequence of who knows what. But uh, if you take that view, then quotas are necessary. And that's before you even get to the Liberal Party's problem, which is that they've tried every other bloody mechanism to try to get better gender representation in their ranks and they haven't achieved it. And that was Scott Morrison's point um, about why he's in favour now of quotas, whether he can convince his party to go down that path. His argument is, we've said for so long now that we're trying other things and clearly it's not working, so we need to look at this. Um, and there's a growing line of Liberals who want to. Of course, there's some very strong opposition from other Liberals against it. Um, will they get there? I don't know. Maybe one day. I hope so. Um, they've actually also got a practical issue with how to get there, Hugh, which we don't have time for now. The structure of the party organisation in the Liberal Party is harder to achieve quotas with the way that it works versus the Labor Party. Now, that's no reason not to try. Um, as I say, I've advocated for this for a long time. But that is also an element that they would need to overcome to put it in place, as well as overcoming ideological opponents. But for God's sake, um, it's it's long overdue. Look at their representation. Look at the culture of what's going on as, as it, I, I believe, in part, in no small part, a consequence of the underrepresentation of women, uh, particularly, you know, in Parliament and at the senior levels within Parliament as well. Uh, they're, they're long overdue for doing it. Um, Scott Morrison has advocated for this, by the way, at, at a low key level for some time. I talk about it in the book that Wayne and I have done, that he was advocating for this prior to the last election, which is not well known. But he's never shouted it and he's never used his authority to make it happen. Let's see if he does now, as opposed to just uses it as a rhetorical device to get through a press conference where he's trying to make the point that he cares. Yeah, and I guess the other is, question is whether these events of the last month will help politicise a generation of women to want to get into Parliament and make a change or whether it makes them all look at it and go, no, you know what, sod it, I, what, a, what, a, what a carnival of monkeys, I want no part of it. Uh, that's yeah, that's a question for another time. Um Peter Van Onselen, good to talk to you. We'll talk soon. Talk soon, mate. Cheers, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 